0: His way with us this week. Well, if you open up your words, Acts chapter 15, if you are visiting with us today or new, we are studying through the book of Acts verse by verse and section by section. <clears throat> I've titled the message today, The Best of Men Are Men at Best. And I want to highlight, just as we open this passage, you know, if you're not, if you're not used to opening the Bible and reading it, the, book, the Bible can be a foreign-feeling book. You're just expecting it to be full of strange quotations, and maybe it's just a bunch of proverbs that tell you how to do life. But, you know, really, it's, it's God selecting particular events and writing them down so that we might gain insights, most importantly, insights about Him. Secondarily, insights about ourselves. And of great necessity, insights about how God restores us to himself. So that's really what the intention of the Bible is about. But there's some areas of life that we're going to traffic in today. And so I just want to invite you to think for a second with me. Have you ever been disillusioned in your life? Expecting that something in your life would have been better than it was. Some people in your life would have done a better job than they did. Some people who may have been people you respected, parents, people in official positions that somehow let you down. Uh, And there were consequences to that, that it showed up in your life. Well, this passage is going to help with that. What if you're a person who has failed at something in a significant way that's had an impact on others? You goofed. It affected other people around you. And you're living in the fallout of that. What's your future going to be like after your goof? We're going to find that in this passage as well. So sit tight with me as we unpack uh, Acts chapter 15 here in just a moment. But let me start with a common perception, I think, that is in the world about Christians, about church people. You know, people go to church, people who are vocal about that in the world that we live in. You know, those Christians, they're, they're a bunch of hypocrites. You know, they espouse this high level of morality that people ought to be living their lives a certain way. They correct things. They call people out who don't live their life under this idea of what they have about what life should be like. They call them out. From, if you're a politician, you get called out. If you're in the entertainment business, you get called out by these Christians and, and And they don't even live up to their own high moral code. You ever been around people who think that way about Christians? It's an interesting thought from pastor and author, Tullyan Chavidian. He says, "It, It often seems that the good news of God's grace has been tragically hijacked by an oppressive religious moralism that is all about rules, rules, and morals. Doing more, trying harder, self-help, getting better, and fixing, fixing, fixing ourselves, our kids, our spouses, our friends, our enemies, our culture, our world. Christianity is perceived as being a vehicle for good behavior and clean living. And the judgments that result from them, rather than the only recourse for those who have failed over and over and over again. Sadly... Too many churches have helped to perpetuate the impression that Christianity is primarily concerned with legislating morality. Believe it or not, Christianity is not about good people getting better. If anything, it is good news for bad people coping with their failure to be good. The heart of the Christian faith is good news, not good advice, good technique, or good behavior. See, there's lots of people in the world who look at the church, and, and what they hear is a, is a bunch of do's and don'ts, a bunch of rules. And even if you're a Christian, and you've been around the Bible a little bit, you've, you've sat in church meetings through the years, we can develop a little bit of this formulaic thinking that if you have right belief plus Divine enablement, which we all believe in the Holy Spirit, comes to us as we believe. Right belief plus divine enablement equals right living. And that's not exactly wrong, is it? I mean, doesn't the Bible talk about living that changes, that our lives do change as we come to know God? There's adjustments that take place in our life? It does. But it doesn't speak that kind of formula in some kind of an absolute way, as though absolutely right belief plus the presence of the living God absolutely equals right living. That's not how the Bible sounds. As a matter of fact, you can't read the New Testament unless you close both eyes and try and read it and not notice that there's a lot of people off course in the Bible. I mean, You realize some of the great advice that we get in living the Christian life is written because of people are off course. That's why you get these letters in the New Testament. Not, these are not letters written to all these churches who they're doing it right. All the Christians in that church do it right. You get a letter. Here, this is great advice. And the churches over there, you're doing it all right. Those churches doing it wrong. They don't get letters. But you guys doing it right, you get a letter. As a matter of fact, it's exactly the opposite. All the churches that get written to, they're getting written to because there's something wrong with them. So how interesting that Christians can still be called Christians and get it wrong. Do it wrong. Do it wrong with each other. I don't know if I put these questions in your outline, but my questions are, do genuine Christians ever do the wrong thing? I mean, can you really be a Christian and do the wrong thing? Do people who are truly in love with God and devoted to his cause ever come up short? What do we do with unexplainable disappointments in people's lives that we thought would never happen? Thought that would never happen to those guys. I'm shocked. I'm I'm disappointed. Well, here I did put this in your outline. Today's passage makes it clear that Christians fall short and they do things that are not ideal, even the best of the best. And more importantly, the good news is still the good news, and God is still at work. All right, so let's read Acts chapter 15, verse 36. It says, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not And Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Father, Lord, remind us again, these are not random stories. They are hand-picked stories given to your church through the ages to give us insight, awaken our souls, and give us truth to live our own lives for your glory. And so, Lord, help us to see into this passage, all that you have placed here for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've been following this story in the book of Acts, you have been bumping into the name Paul and Barnabas joined together over and over and over again. Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas and Paul. I mean, it's like Batman and Robin, Laurel and Hardy. Uh, I don't know who else is famous in the couples category, but they're more famous than that. These guys are the feature of what's been happening all the way back to Acts chapter 11. right? Remember this? Back in Acts chapter 11, verse 22. There's this great work that God begins to do in Antioch. And Barnabas is assigned by the church in Jerusalem to go to Antioch and to build up this fledgling, just starting to get its life together, church in Antioch. In verse 22, it says, The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch for for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians, right? So you have this starting out moment, right? These formative stages of this church in Antioch were going to be in the hands of a man named Barnabas and a man named Paul. And so formative is this that today we're, we're talking about Christians today. Well, it was under the supervision and leadership of these two men that that term. Takes off, right? So you know how it is to form a relationship with somebody in formative stages of something, right? You go back and you think about your, your marriage when it was young and life was very different and you were just starting out and you were building memories and life together. You were going through stuff together and it, and it built you into one another. Or maybe you've been part of a church for a long time that's been through a bunch of things and you've, just, you've shared life together You've been through the formative years together. Right? Some of us here, we've got relationships with guys in high school or sports buddies that we did things with or college roommates that just exist for the rest of your life. That's Paul and Barnabas. They're sharing life together in a significant way. And let me just give you a quick little snapshot in your outline there of who these guys are. Barnabas, his name means son of encouragement. and He was a, he was a man who seemed to believe in the future of people. Right? Right, you go back to Acts chapter 9 and this, this rascal named Saul of Tarsus gets saved. He's a radical, dangerous man. Saul is a, uh, he's, he's a bit of a terrorist for the Christian church. If you didn't know that, you, you know, the apostle Paul was not always this great guy to cuddle up next to. He was risky. He was a killer. And, he, and this word gets out that he, Saul got saved. This man who was against Christianity, he has encountered God in such a way that his whole life has been turned upside down and he's now a Christian. But his reputation was so bad that most people were running around going, yeah, right. <laughs> so here this poor guy becomes a Christian. He can't get any Christians to want to get near him. You know, it's like he's like a leper or something until, <clears throat> until you get around Barnabas. Right? Acts chapter 9 verse 26 when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. I mean, poor guy can't fit in. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord. And he shared Paul's testimony. See, everybody else had a hard time believing that this was a real, genuine thing. But Barnabas is this kind of guy. He has the ability to stare into circumstances and just see good stuff there and celebrate it and go with it when other people are staring at it and going, hey, no, no, that's not real, man, that's fake, right? But, you know, remember when we all separated the room last week? We could do that again today. And you, know, you got all the cynical people on one side and all the naive people on the other, right? everybody who just cynically just looks at everything and says, that ain't what it looks like. Just every time you look at it, right? Just by nature, there's something going on there. Don't believe that. And there's a naive people that have bought two of them already, you know. You're in the room here. You know who you are. Uh, All right, well, look, look real quickly here. Acts chapter 13, in the story of Saul and Barnabas, opens with this prayer meeting taking place. These leaders in Antioch are praying together. The Holy Spirit is about to direct the first missionary enterprise. So, so far there's been been no formal deputized, if you will, sending of uh, ministry into the field to plant the gospel and raise up churches. But when they go to do that, they're led to send these two dynamic duo men. Paul and Barnabas are going to be sent to this work. And they go off, they they break ground in, in town after town, Sometimes there's incredible miracles that take place. There's rejection that takes place. There's stonings that take place. There's opposition. There's threats. So these guys have have experienced warfare together. They've been in the foxhole together. Their, Their hearts are knit together in a unique way. They come back from their trip. They gather the church in Antioch and they begin to explain to the church in Antioch all that God has done. And then there's this controversy that's broken out in the body of Christ all over the place. The challenge we looked at last week, the discussion about Jews and Gentiles with all their differences and backgrounds trying to come together and be one church. How do you do that? How do you take people with such diversity and difference and hostility and we don't like the way you are and and protect this thing that God is raising up from, from becoming the Jewish version and the Gentile version of something called the church? And these two men travel to Jerusalem and they they make their case in the council before other leaders for unity. These two make their case for unity. That all this diversity should come together, should learn to get along, should respect one another's differences, each one being careful for the sake of the other one and we should come together to display the unity for the glory of God. And a letter gets written and it gets dispersed to all the churches. They come back returned to Antioch and began to teach again in Antioch, as they had been doing for years. And then we come to verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we had proclaimed the gospel. Now, I'm just going to fly through a few thoughts here, but I, I just wanted—I wanted to run interference with some of the assumptions that we make. So you have these two men here who have been powerfully led by God. The last time they did a missionary journey together, it was under the clear, expressed, explained leadership of the Holy Spirit for these two men to go. Uh, these you know, If we were to take a poll today, how many of you guys think that Paul and Barnabas were men of prayer? Uh, I don't think anybody here would raise their hand and go, no, they just shot from the hip. (laughs) They just did whatever came to their mind. These were men of of prayer, I think we can say. These men had a sense from God to do things. These men did things that put their lives on the line. They didn't casually go from town to town because you you decide to go to that town and Paul got stoned and left for dead, remember? And, And yet he goes back. Listen, you don't do that kind of stuff in the natural they're doing that kind of stuff because God is compelling them in their heart. And I wonder, Paul approaches Barnabas and he says, Let us return. But you've read the whole story here already. There ain't going to be any us. How many guys realize there's a little bit of a difficulty here? Because more than likely, safe to assume, these two men thought God was leading them to go together back into the mission field. It's never going to happen. They're going to go, but there ain't going to be no us going. Does that mess with you a little bit? Does it mess with you that there's a possibility that two men as profoundly impacting and used by God named Paul and Barnabas seem to have an impression to go do something that we trust was led by God and at the end of the day they're not going to do it the way in which God seemingly may have been leading them to do it. Does that mess you up? Come on, be honest because you know it messes you up when you look at somebody else doing something that you thought God said do that and now you're doing that and you kind of get up in their cage. Right? It does mess you up. We don't, we don't like when that kind of stuff happens. But that, hey, that's here. That's in the story here. Verse 37. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take this guy with them who had previously abandoned the work. John Mark apparently had gone on the first missionary journey with them. They set out, they sailed to Cyprus, they had some exchanges there, got a little dicey, got a little difficult, and John Mark bails on them. And Paul decides, that's a bad idea. But Barnabas wants to bring John Mark with them. Right, so this is, this is not an absolute, is it? Right, there's, there's nothing in the Bible that says, if a guy goofs once, you never bring him again. Or if he goofs once, as long as he doesn't goof twice, you bring him with you. So they can't argue from scripture here. Barnabas wants to do this. Paul stares at the same exact thing and says, that's not a good idea. Barnabas thinks it's a good idea. Paul thinks it's a bad idea. Which one of these guys is is righteous here? Right? Do you respect both of these men? Because I do. Now I'm watching these guys ping pong back and forth. I'm thinking, wow. <laughs> wow. Paul's pretty convincing. I mean, Paul... Paul could convince you. (laughs) But Barnabas, Barnabas has got faith. Barnabas, the encourager, man, he's got faith for this, but Paul does not have faith for this. Barnabas thinks it's right. Paul thinks it's wrong. All right, welcome to conflict among the best. You can't escape conflict. I mean, did you think that if you came into the church, like somehow the church is the reinvention of the Garden of Eden, that I'd come into the church and and there wouldn't be any conflicts. Well, you know what? A lot of people think exactly that. You know how I know that? Because when conflict happens, they freak out. They're totally shocked. They're unbelievably surprised. They're like, "I, I can't believe you would be disagreeing with me this way. I can't believe how emotional you are about this. I can't believe you said the wrong thing to me or to somebody else. It's like, we're just shocked. Oh my gosh, Christians disagreeing with each other? Strongly? A conflict in the church? No, can't be. Yeah, it can be. It was in the Bible. Why are you shocked? Did you not read Acts chapter 15? Did you not look at noble men like Barnabas and Paul having a conflict? Ken Sandy says, he defines conflict as a difference in opinion or purpose that frustrates someone's goals or desires. Some disputes arise because of misunderstanding resulting from poor communication. Or it rises from differences. I think this is more theirs. Differences in values, goals, gifts. Right? Paul is a certain way, Barnabas is a certain way, they see things strongly, each of them calling, priorities. What's the priority? What's the priority for Paul right now? What's a priority for Barnabas? Expectations, interests, or opinions. Or conflicts arise right? if you have children and you're having breakfast. Competition over limited resources. <laughs> I mean, when we get down to the last cinnamon roll, man, you know, there's a bunch of us in our house. It, it, it could get dicey. We hide, the, we hide the silverware if we have to. Many conflicts are caused or aggravated by sinful attitudes and habits that lead to sinful words and actions. Listen, please, please, please do not, whether whether you're a person way outside the church looking and staring through binoculars or you're, you're a person in the church, please do not have the idea that being a Christian makes you immune to conflict. As as long as there are two people armed with a want to and an opinion, you have all the ingredients for a conflict. Husbands and wives, can you say amen? So we don't get to escape this. But this is not just a conflict. This is a sharp disagreement. This is a loaded word here. Even among the best of the best, this is a sharp disagreement. This isn't just a, hey, great idea, you know I totally respect your idea and you respect mine. And this is a sharp disagreement. Ken Hughes says the Greek word, parasumsmus, I'm saying it wrong, I'm sure, is the word from which we derive our English word, paroxysm, which denotes violent action or emotion. This was not a mild gentleman's disagreement, but an intense and passionate conflict among the most dynamic duo in the New Testament. The best of the best. Paul and Barnabas together are mentioned 13 times in these five chapters, but never again together after Acts chapter 15. Does that mess with you? It should. messes with me tempts me to think if those guys can't get it right, huh, what about the rest of us? Oh, I'm not sure that's probably the most helpful thought. So let's, let's do this. I want to stare at this conflict, this conflict between these two men through the eyes of some others. Eventually we're going to stare at it through our own eyes. Because conflict is never, never simply about two people. Conflict always spills over into the people around the conflict. Right? If you're husbands and wives and you have a family, that, that conflict spills over into your family. Uh, if you are a business partner and you have a conflict, that it will spill over into the employees, into the people that you're leading and serving. If you're part of a church and you have a conflict, it will spill over into the life of the church. Right? Conflict always touches other people. So let me, let me start with this young man named John Mark. Because I think you see something really amazing about his life here. But why, why this conflict? Why Barnabas and Paul are at each other with some intensity? Well, because John Mark fumbled in his assignment. John Mark dropped the ball. John Mark went on a trip, the first missionary journey. And in the early stages, after a couple of stops... Couple of cities, couple of ministry points, he bails on them. Not quite sure. Doesn't tell us why. It doesn't seem like a, an acceptable written excuse for Paul. You know, he didn't get a note from his doctor if he was sick, apparently. Paul Paul finds issue with his reasons. So I don't know, you know, John Mark, maybe he's a young guy. He's not, he's not used to being away from home. Maybe that homesickness got him and he just felt way out of sorts. Uh, maybe he got scared. When you're going from town to town with Paul, they're threatening to kill this guy one place after another. Uh, I might want to go home. <laughs> uh, I might not want to be identified with these guys from place to place and put my life on the line. Uh, maybe he's just irresponsible. Maybe he was a brat. I don't know. But for whatever reason, he parts ways. And now John Mark is witness to watching these, these two giants in his eyes get into it over him. Now he's Barnabas' cousin, so he's, he's, he's related to Barnabas. And at the end of the day, he's going to watch his cousin, whom he loves, part ways with the biggest name in the New Testament. Barnabas' walk with Paul is over. And John Mark has to live with that. How many of you recognize John Mark probably uh, felt a little guilty about what happened? He's, He's the epicenter. What he did drove these two men away from each other. If he hadn't done what he did, these two guys would be together. I mean, I feel for John Mark. But here, here's a reality check for those of us who think the church can't be a source of discomfort for anybody ever. It shouldn't be that way. And if it ever is, there's something wrong with the church. Well, there is stuff wrong with us. That's why this advertisement that, to the world that, hey, we are the morality people, and here's the code, and we do it all right all the time. It's just inaccurate. It's just not accurate. We don't do it right all the time. We needed a savior when we were outside the church and we need him just as much when we're in the church. So it doesn't go away. So for whatever reason, whoever you make the bad guy here, Barnabas and Paul, it sounds as though probably we lean maybe towards Paul. Uh, Here's reality. Let me put it into our term. In the church, in the church, you're a John Mark in the church, someone may hold your failure against you. You goof in some area. You started down some road. You thought you'd be faithful in that road. You goofed it. You goofed it up. You hurt other people. You let somebody down. You feel bad about that already. And somebody somebody respected like the Apostle Paul holds it against you. They bring it up in the future. They, they limit your ability to serve in the future based on that past failure. That's reality. That happened in the church in Antioch. Reality in the church, people have to deal with being made to feel guilty. You ever been made to feel guilty about something you've done or something you didn't do or the way you're living something? People get around you, they say things, they live a certain way, they press on your life in some way and you feel guilty. You feel like you're not measuring up. Listen, no one loves that. No one should love that. I don't love that. I can't love it for you. It's just not something any of us want. But it's, it's reality in the church. You may bump into that. Feeling guilty, being reminded of your failure. You may bump into that. What do you do? stop going to church. <clears throat> Can I tell you, that's what a lot of people do. They don't like the way they're feeling. They want to get away from the source of what they're feeling. I'm just going to stop going. You bump into them somewhere way down the road and hey man, how's it going? I haven't seen you. Or, or, or go to another church. Just get away from them I and Go somewhere else to church. Right, well, I'm going to show you in a little bit. I'm quite glad that that wasn't John Mark's response, in spite of the fact that he felt pretty bad about what was happening here. And there were two men in his life. There was Barnabas in his life. We've already seen Barnabas. He's the son of encouragement, right? He is a man who is ready to invest himself in the risky Saul of Tarsus or the proven fumbling failure named John Mark, Barnabas believes in you, man. He's going to be there with you. He's going to hold your hand. He's going to say kind words. He's going to pick you up. He's going to cause you to look down the road and say, you can do this. Don't quit. John Mark, don't quit. Don't do that. Listen, uh, you're, you're going to be fine. God is going to do something in your life. That's Barnabas, right? There are Barnabases in this room. God, I thank God for the Barnabases in this room. Right? Can you remember Barnabases in your life? people who stood in your life when you gave up, you stopped believing, you knew you were a failure, you knew you'd hurt other people, you thought there's no way out of this, there's no future, and this Barnabas just stands with you in the midst of that and encourages you and says, no, there's a future here. It's going to be okay. And thank God for Barnabases. I'm grateful for some of the men in this room, some of the men that have been in my life who, who saw something in the future and just relentlessly wouldn't let me lose it. We need barnabases in our midst. But I'm not gonna spend too much time on Barnabas, because all the Barnabases, they're really, really easy to like. I don't have to convince you at all to like any Barnabas. You've never met a Barnabas that somebody had to tell you, look, just get over it. <laughs> God calls you to love everybody, man. You gotta love the Barnabases. Barnabases just suck love right out of you. <laughs> you get around them and you just wanna love this guy. It's like you just feel like I'm just floating. I'm just moving fast. are just being in the presence of this guy. It just feels good. It's like medicine. Nobody has to command you to love that guy. Everybody's not a Barnabas. <clears throat> Some people are Pauls. Paul apparently doesn't quite make you feel that way. <clears throat> Paul, Paul has a very high view of ministry. I'm not saying Barnabas doesn't. But Paul sees ministry through his grid and his personality in such a way that what comes out of him is that thing, John Mark, you put your hands on was of the utmost importance and you treated it too casually. I'm not taking you with me again. Paul's not a hater of John Mark. Paul's not even a man who isn't willing to work with people. He's about to scoop up Timothy here in the next chapter young man, sure he had his issues. But he has such a high view of ministry. He, he sees eternal things. He sees the importance of the weight of the gospel that he needs to take as far as he can possibly take it to the ends of the earth. To him, this matters and what he is about matters. It's not as though other people are doing stuff that matters to Paul. To Paul, ministry matters. Listen, listen Paul was not a man... Who would have thought, you know, the, the, the movers and shakers are the people like in our world who are, who are big executives with the Fortune 500 companies. You know, the guys with a the title. They're guys with a lot of finance background. they they got to make decisions that are global. They've got a very demanding job. It's p- completely understandable how much stress is in their life and stress on themselves and stress on their family because they're doing something really important. They work for a Fortune 500 company. They're vice presidents. They're doctors and lawyers. Paul thought whatever little task John Mark had on that trip was important. He treated ministry like it mattered, he treated the God of glory like he's the ultimate boss to whom I'm accountable. And this thing called ministry, this mysterious thing where human beings take something called truth and brush it up against other people's lives, he thought that's the most important thing anybody could be doing. And if you're going to fumble the ball there, you're not coming with me. I'm not sure how the Apostle Paul would do as a modern Pastor Paul. Right? You know, you were late for children's ministry twice. Twice. And there's Pastor Paul standing on your way in and you're running in. Week number two, you're late and you're unprepared. Children's church workers. I know none of y'all have ever experienced that where you come into the meeting not being able to actually study and prepare anything and you're just going to wing it, you know? Just pull out the material and just see where it goes. It's kids, what the heck. It's not going to call us down or anything. And Pastor Paul... Walks in. Excuse me, can I see you? Yeah, this, this will be your last morning. <laughs> you're, you're not going to be doing children's ministry anymore. I mean, honestly, I think the church could use a little dose of that, couldn't it? Because we, we've started to treat ministry like it's a side hobby. It's not important. It's not as important as our jobs. It's not as in, as important as hobbies that we have. Oh my goodness, I I can't not play in the league. Got a league that night, man. I can't not do that. It's important. Really. Listen, you you'd love hanging out with Barnabas. He'd probably go throw the ball with you. I don't know. But but Paul Paul would say, then don't bother he just say, never mind. We'll go on without you. No, you're not coming. <laughs> That's Paul. And the church needs Barnabas's. The church needs Paul's. Paul was not an easy man to be around. Right, The great apostle Paul, whom we love, may not have been the easiest man to be around. Derek Thomas says, from one point of view, Paul was a difficult man to work alongside. He was multi-talented, was rigidly focused, and did not suffer fools gladly. He could appear overbearing and calculating. He had a single vision for God's kingdom and glory and had little time for underachievers. Many of us would far rather work alongside the forgiving Barnabas than the demanding Paul. I'm sure true for John Mark. So John Mark has this encounter with Barnabas and he has this encounter with Paul. In this conflict. But in case you're not aware. Let me just tell you real quickly. Those couple of verses in your outline there. Here's the rest of John Mark's story. Here's what happens with John Mark. After this terrible encounter. And disappointing experience. Colossians chapter 4. Written some 10 years or so later. From the apostle Paul. Who's in a jail cell in Rome. In Rome writes this, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. You know the guy who abandoned the work before? Is now with Paul in his prison sentence. A faithful man. He wasn't faithful before. But he is now. Second Timothy 4 written years later. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. For he is very useful to me. For ministry, ah, I, w- I was in tears reading that this week, and knowing what John Mark probably went through years later to see a man who now, the Apostle Paul, who said, "You aren't coming, now says, "Bring him, bring him. He is very useful to me for ministry. Ah, oh, don't you love the redemptive work of God in our lives. In 1 Peter 5, we have the apostle Peter, different apostle, saying this, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Mark, from whom you and I are reading the gospel of Mark, Peter's son. This irresponsible fumbler became a very, very significant person in the kingdom of God, influencing two of the greatest apostles in the New Testament and serving both of them and being used by God to write a book that you and I still read to this day. Aren't you glad Mark didn't decide to stop going to church when he got offended? It really mattered that he would respond in godliness in the midst of that conflict. So here he is, different story. So, you see, Paul was wrong. Paul was wrong. Okay, probably so. But in God's great plan for John Mark, whose actions were more significant? The encouragement of Barnabas or the weightiness of Paul? I wonder. No question, Barnabas. Barnabas made a giant impression in continuing to believe in this young man and to walk with him and to build him up and strengthen him. No question. But don't disregard the impact that took place in his life when the Apostle Paul installed weightiness in his life. You have treated this, John Mark, like it wasn't important. And you need to learn how important this is. And he was stiff and he was immovable and he made the kid feel like a flop and a failure because he took the ministry and he put it up here. He didn't just lower it and say, look, it's nothing, it's cool, it's nothing. He held it up here and I think he, treated, he taught John Mark to respect the weightiness of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Listen, this is, this is classic good cop, bad cop. Right. Classic good parent, bad parent. Have you guys figured your parents out, right? One of them's a Barnabas, and one of them's a Paul. Every once in a while, they go schizo on and they change places. My wife and I do that <laughs> occasionally. Uh, probably we do it a lot. I'm not sure what our problem is, but we can have some days where I'm just totally sympathetic and I'm just totally okay. It's it's like, honey, but you know, half the house isn't burned down. It's 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 really it's not a big deal. And she's like Paul and. Uh, and then we have days where just, we're just exactly the opposite. And I'm just demanding and no and this. And she's like, honey, you know, maybe you just ought to lighten up a little bit. But you figured that out, right? You got, you got people in your life that some of them played this Barnabas role, but you've had some people in your life play the Paul role. And they've been these weightiness and this sense of disappointment around them, the challenge that it comes with it. And God has used them both in your life and even if Paul is totally blown it here maybe maybe Paul's really really goofed you, you don't need to have perfect people at work in your life because God is at work in your life it doesn't appear that somebody did the right thing here Paul seems to be the easy one to blame You know, the reality is people around us don't always do the right thing, and and you don't need them to do the right thing. Stop telling yourself that your future is dependent upon everybody around you doing the right thing. Stop telling yourself that. We sang songs this morning about the freedom of God. Listen, can we just get free from that? You're dependent upon God doing the right thing. That's what you're dependent upon. You know what screams at this? What screamed at me as I read this. If you keep reading after John, after Acts chapter 15, into Acts chapter 16, Acts, the writer of Acts, treats this event like a speed bump. Two of the most important people in the New Testament to this point can't work out their differences. But in Acts chapter 16, God's still doing what God's been doing the whole book. There's no difference. Paul goes that way. Barnabas goes that way. I don't know if they were pouting. I don't know what they were doing. But God was still being God in that moment. So, so don't start believing that you, you can't have a future. You know, you're the John Mark here. You, you, unless people around you get it right. No, you just need God to get it right. And he's, he's pretty good at getting it right. All right, what, about, what about a couple of other eyes here? Let me just conclude some thought quickly. What about the eyes of leaders in the churches in Antioch? Right? They have leaders here who one day they know Paul and Barnabas are partnered together going back into the mission field. And next thing you know, they hear they're going separate ways. And you, and you grab Paul on the way out of town. Paul, wait, wait. wait. Paul, why aren't you taking Barnabas with you? He shows up in these towns where they 've planted churches where they 've been in ministry for months in these churches. Paul and Barnabas, the dynamic duo who taught Antioch, has been teaching these churches. Paul shows up in Derby in Lystra. What do you think the first question is well where 's Barnabas more than likely where 's Barnabas because he 's the easier one to talk to. <laughs> You know, you're trying to make conversation with Paul. He's so directed and so Barnabas you could hang out with. Paul sets foot in your town and you walk up to him and say, where's Barnabas? How does Paul answer? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us, but can you see the reality of challenge here? These two men couldn't work through their differences and stay together. Paul is going to have to explain that, I'm sure, in some way. Things didn't work out ideally. What about us as we gaze into this conflict here and we take some things away? A couple of thoughts. First, how do we interpret everything that happened after Acts chapter 15? Because we have this mentality. This is why I'm asking that question. You know, Acts 15, this event occurs, it looks like somebody is out of the will of God. It just looks like it, right? Doesn't it? You with me? Let us go together. And then we go apart. Whoa, whoa, time out. You guys sound like you're out of the will of God. You guys had a heated dispute. Well, the remedy to heated disputes is work through it and come back together in unity. And you didn't do that. So it just looks like everything from this moment forward is out of the will of God. Right? Do, you ever, do you think that way? You got to this point in your life where you did something you shouldn't have done. You operated in what you understood to be out of the will of God. And then our default setting, is it's kind of like, well, this was God's pathway. His, what, what's the, uh, the terminology? We don't use them too much anymore, but they're 70s and 80s terminology. The center of God's will. Did we hear that phrase? I'm in the center of God's will. That's a fun thing to take apart, isn't it? Really? What's at the edge? <laughs> What's about 15 degrees off? You know, where does that put you? You're still in God's will, but I don't know, the permissible God's will. Just all this goofy stuff comes out. So this idea that they're walking in God's will and they decide to go their own way over issues that they can't resolve. So certainly now they're on this track. So everything in Acts chapter 16 onward is some kind of plan B. It's stuff that never should have happened, right? I mean, is that how we interpret this? Is that how we interpret our lives? Because if I read the Bible, I find out that God is a sovereign God who gets his work done even, even when people sinfully do the wrong thing. Right? But see, that's what we do. We, we think our future is dependent upon other people doing the right thing. And then somehow we have a theology that says even God's future is dependent upon everybody doing the right thing. I read Acts chapter 15, I find out the program continues. Paul, Barnabas, do it right, do it wrong. God is still God. And in Acts chapter 16, he's not less God. He's not plan B God. He's still God. And he's still accomplishing his will. What about this? What does this passage do for us when we are confronted with a conflict? I I have to admit, this was... this, what I'm about to say to you right now, was tempting for me not to preach this message. Because here's, in this day and age, when I want, I want everything in the universe to just get in line behind me. I don't want any challenges. I don't want to adjust. I don't want to be slowed up. I mean, this, is, this is where road rage comes from. I mean, i I'm, I had to arrest. you ever have to just arrest yourself sometimes? You have to cross examine yourself? Somebody pulls out in front of you and then goes too slow? Yeah, I, I, the other day I had to argue with myself. It's like, why are you mad at this guy? You don't even know him. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to talk to my soul. It's like, I, I, I don't want anything of difficulty in my life. I don't want it. A conflict comes along. What's the easiest thing to do with conflict? Just walk away from it. Decide, I don't feel like dealing with you. I don't feel like listening to your nonsense, doesn't make any sense, stupid argument. You want, but I think better. I'm with Paul. You wanted something. I got a better thought than you got. And I don't feel like having to deal with what you want. So the easy thing to do is just walk away. Just go start over. Go somewhere else. Move into another set of relationships. Break that one up. It's rampant in our culture, it's become our default setting. So here's, here's what I'd say don't do what the Bible doesn't do with this verse. Don't play it like a card. Don't take this story, and next time you get into a conflict with somebody, pull out the, the well, Paul and Barnabas couldn't do it card. Wouldn't you just love to do that? Because I know right now, some of you are tempted right now. You don't even want to stay for the rest of the service. You're ready just to say, yeah, I'm ready to go right now, man. (laughs) If Paul and Barnabas couldn't work it out, Keith, I certainly can't work it out with you. (laughs) This isn't a card. As a matter of fact, read the rest of the New Testament. This is an oddity. Everywhere else in the New Testament, people are fighting for what Peter described. The unity of the Godhead expressed amongst the people of God. So you want to fight for something? Don't pull this card out and throw it on the table. Fight for the unity that God has given us together in the body of Christ. Last thought. What does this passage do for us when other leaders and mature believers in our lives take the low road? If you've been in New Orleans for a while, you'll, you'll, you can fill in the blanks of what I'm not saying there was a church in New Orleans in the 70s and 80s. It was a going and blowing church. It was affecting people's lives. You almost couldn't. I got saved in 1979. I began to get around some of these folks in about 1982, 83. It's almost like you couldn't find somebody that got saved in New Orleans that didn't come through that church somehow. didn't get saved under that pastor's ministry. and under just. It was like an epicenter of what God was doing. And that continued for a number of years in a great way until the day that that man sinned and failed. Now, he didn't just, he didn't just have a little bump in the road here. It was, it was a major sin issue. And that whole church felt pieces. And what was really sad to see for years and years and years after that, as a matter of fact, I bet I could find some people today I would bump into people who used to be a part of that church, who their, their response to that was to be a part of nothing. You'd run into them, and you knew they weren't in that church anymore because it had disintegrated. And yeah, so, hey, man, where are you going to church now? Oh, you know, ever since, I'm just not, you know, we just, we just never have gotten reconnected. Why does, why does that happen? Because we we take the Pauls and the Barnabases and we put them into a stratosphere where they don't belong. And then when they fail, like the Bible just modeled for us that they will, we are freaked out by it. And we got nowhere to go. We're disillusioned now by people who lead us. That could happen again. Well, yes, it could. Yes, it could. Remember, the best... Of men are men at best. Right? Some of us who have been in this church for a while, you know, we're part of a family of churches in Sovereign Grace Ministries. Our meetings that we're going to have this week, uh, it's a bit of a trying to re glue something together season for Sovereign Grace Ministries because of some, some real sadness. I mean, some real genuine sadness amongst the Pauls and the Barnabases that have led Sovereign Grace Ministries. Right? And some of you guys won't, won't know these names and some of you guys would know these names. But guys like C.J. Mahaney, whom I, I would have a whole lot more of good things to say about the man than anything bad to say. Doesn't mean I know everything. Doesn't mean I've agreed with everything that's been accused or proved or done. But this was a man who faithfully led, walked with other men in ministry, in friendship with guys like Brent Detweiler. Brent was a friend of ours. I spent hours of time with Brent, had him in my home. Gene and I spent lots of time with he and his wife. He and CJ. Had a friendship and a partnership in ministry. Dave Harvey was, was not as close to Dave, but spent time with Dave. Dave was one of the guys leading Sovereign Grace ministries. Josh Harris, a, a young guy who God had given some wonderful gifts and ability to lead. And, and these, these four guys, amongst others, but these four guys walked together, they had a friendship. They built for the kingdom of God. They invested in churches. They served other leaders. They modeled something. And as far as I know, they don't have anything to do with each other anymore. No continuing friendship and relationship. Okay, listen. I'm preaching to you about Paul and Barnabas. That was impacting on me in the last few years. These these were men I appreciated. These were men I respected. These were men that it would be tempting for me or any of us to say, well, if that can happen to them, what the heck, right? So these things affect us. But the Bible installs Acts 15, so we're not surprised by this. We're not disillusioned. We're going to quit the church when this happens. We shouldn't have been surprised that it happened. We're going to quit Sovereign Grace Ministries because of this. We're disappointed. We're saddened. But so are folks around Paul and Barnabas. But God is still at work. God keeps going, knowing that people have done it wrong. Done it wrong. Let me close with this quote. Because in a very real way, God, God is seeking to sort of burst our over-idealized expectations of others. And you know, I don't know how hard it was for Antioch, but I can tell you right now, you and I live in an over-idealized culture. We glamorize everything. We make it ultimate So our opinions of what church life should be like and what people should be like and what leaders should be like and what marriage should be like, everything is this over-idealized thought that we just become disillusioned constantly by stuff that seems to be going wrong. This is a great quote. I was grateful for Bill sharing it with me this week. The timeliness of it was profound. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, a theologian, He was a leader in the church in Germany during the Nazi regime. So a great deal of life together, as the book describes, was a a bit of an underground church where there was a, a heightened sense of danger in being part of the church and being together. People relating to one another. People connecting with each other. People like Paul and Barnabas. Who at some point can have a sharp disagreement between them. And it may be that God's intention is, you know, don't be surprised by this. God intended to stick you with people who were going to disappoint you. That's what they're going to do. And what about this? What about the possibility that God designed that into this gathering? It's like it's on a schedule. On Tuesday, there's going to be a little disruption over here, just promise y'all. You chose to sit over here, sorry, Tuesday, uh, Thursday. some disruption here. Your relationships, you're going to be disappointed. Somebody's going to let you down. God installed that in the body of Christ. Listen to this thought. A great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we're fortunate, with ourselves, is bound to overwhelm us as surely as God desires to lead us to an understanding of genuine Christian community. By sheer grace, God will not permit us to live in a dream world even for a few weeks and to abandon ourselves to those blissful experiences and exalted moods that sweep over us like a wave of rapture. Only that community which enters into the experience of this great disillusionment with all its unpleasant and evil appearances begins to be what it should be in God's sight begins to grasp in faith the promise that is given to it. The sooner this moment of disillusionment comes over the individual and the community, the better for both. However, a community that cannot bear and cannot survive such disillusionment, clinging instead to its idealized image, when that should be done away with, loses at the same time the promise of a durable Christian community. Sooner or later, it is bound to collapse. Therefore, will not the very moment of great disillusionment with my brother or sister be incomparably wholesome for me? Because it so thoroughly teaches me that both of us can never live by our own words and deeds, but only by that one word and deed. That really binds us together, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. The bright day of Christian community dawns wherever the early morning mists of dreamy visions are lifting. Listen, I know right now you're sitting in this room. There are people in your life you are disappointed with them. They have have let you down. I think God installs that sort of failure in these places to keep us from pulling our eyes from him and setting it on people as the source of our lives. People are not the source of our lives. Whether those people are pastors, husbands and wives, parents, bosses, whoever they are, they are not the source of our lives. They are destined for a Paul and Barnabas moment. Where husbands and wives leading children don't put it back together, and those kids watch parents do that. And it's tempting to believe, there went my future. your, Your future didn't do that. Your future only did that if your future was in them. But what if your future is in Christ? Well, then your future didn't just do that with them. Your hope is still intact, God is still at work. John Mark. God will get you where he wants you because he is faithful to his work. Let's stand up together. Just let you get quiet for a moment. Close your eyes. I'm going to read this last paragraph to you. You can look at it when you get home in your notes. The good news is not the story of good people always doing good things. It is news of God coming to be good on our behalf because we could not. It is good news being announced by people who needed someone else to be good in their place. It is good news being announced by people who have been affected by the news but not yet perfected by that news. The good news is the story of what God does that is not controlled by what men do. God was still at work even though Paul and Barnabas did not continue in the work together. God was still at work. Let's let's pray together. Lord, there are Well, there's some folks here who perhaps, as we started, their view of the church is a bunch of people who think they're good, trying to be good, trying to tell everybody else how to be good. What I pray today, anybody here thinking that way would recognize that the church is not the good club. Trying to get you to join so you'll be good the same ways that we're good. But the church church's people who were convinced they could never be good, never, and came to realize they didn't have to be, because God came to be good in the person of Jesus Christ, and he was the only one who never had a Paul and Barnabas moment, he was the only one who never got to a place where sin overtook him, he was good in our place. If you're here today and you're thinking the church world is about a bunch of people here trying to make you better. Hey, this morning, can you look to God and, and, and realize if you're like me and most of us here, I remember coming to grips with a life that wasn't working. It's not working. I'm not able to make it work. I feel empty. I feel alone. And then I heard about God Giving to me life and giving to me goodness. Just giving it to me. Giving me the person of Jesus Christ. If I just would put my hope in him. He would come into my life. Listen, this morning, if you're here and you've not done that. And you're you're thinking Christianity is about you trying to be good. It's not about you trying to be good. It's about you trusting Jesus Christ who was good on your behalf. He lived a life that you and I could never live. He took our punishment and our sin for all the wrongdoing we've ever done. He took it and paid the price in order to give you life for free. If you're here today, don't, 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 don't try and be good. Just receive from God. God is a gift for you. He wants to give you life. He'll give it to you. You want it? Well, so Stop trying to do it yourself and just open your heart right now and say, God, I, I want the gift of of life in Jesus Christ. I want that. God, would you just come into my life? Forgive me of my sins. Tell God that right now. And lead me from this day forward. God'll do that. I pray for those that are here feel like a John Mark. Lord, there are there are guys in our midst who are more in touch with the sense of guilt that they have about life, the sense of failing. They're aware they have failed. They have fallen short. They've had pastors and parents and leaders and friends and folks who have stood in their face and said things, and their response has been a sense of deep guilt and failure. Well, they're, they're here in the midst of us. Lord, they're... They're living the John Mark life. Lord, they need to have their lives put back together. And God, I thank you that the good news for them, good news this morning, is that they don't need Paul and Barnabas to do it all right for them. Lord, they just need to believe that you're at work and you haven't quit and you haven't given up. God, a little bit of faith that Barnabas had was just nothing in comparison to what you're like in encouraging us. What you see in us down the road is you are at work what you call us to. So Lord, would you help the John Marks here this morning to see a future, to see a day when their name won't be mentioned amongst the black sheep, but their name will be mentioned in ways that are amazing. Because that's what you do, God. Acts chapter 16 is coming. And we're so grateful. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Bless you guys.